now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Len. Good evening, my name is Len. I am a compulsive overreader. I'm an insane compulsive overreader. Hi, Len. There are people here from the San Fernando Valley, aren't they? Yeah. We don't know what he did, right? <laughs> Just started after Memorial Day working at a job in the San Fernando Valley. He brought a new meaning to the word sweat. Uh, my name is Len. I'm a compulsive overeater. I've been uh, attending Overeaters Anonymous as a working member since February 23, 1976. I've been abstaining from compulsive overeating since March 20th, 1991. I am. Uh, I just celebrated my 75th birthday on uh, May 11th. What else to talk about? And I've weighed over 300 pounds in 30 plus years, right? There was an obituary in the Los Angeles Times this week for a man named Bud Ferrillo. I don't know if anybody knows that name. Bud Ferrillo, 30 years ago, was 33 years ago, was the sports editor of the Herald Examiner, a defunct newspaper. And after he left the Herald Examiner, he went to KABC. I was working at KABC at the time. I came out here from New York to work in radio. Uh, Bud started a television show called The Steam Room, and I became a production assistant on the show because I had no television in my resume. And I got to talk to the people and say, what question are you going to ask? Who should be the SC quarterback? Why don't you ask, should kids play with elite ball instead? You know, things like that. Anyway. I met a group of people. We used to tape out in the valley at a place called Rams Ones out of business. And we would take five shows on a Monday night. We would start at 8.30 at night, and there'd be 400 people there. And by 2.30 in the morning, there'd be 12 people there. But we'd get our five shows. I met a lot of people. And uh, one was a guy named Ira. And uh, Ira and I became binge buddies. I found out later I was working on Sunset Boulevard. He was working in the next building. And we met each other when the food truck came in. And uh, we would talk, and we would solve the world's problems and talk food and, and, and binge together. And one day Ira said something to me. He said, you see that girl over there? Her name is Lenore. I said, yeah. She lost 100 pounds in something called Overeaters Anonymous. And I said, oh, I had an alcoholic in the family. I knew what 12-step programs were. I didn't know how it applied to eating. I had been dieting all my life, so I didn't know. But anyway, that was the first I'd ever heard of Overeaters Anonymous. That was January of 1976, I guess it was. Yeah. Anyway, to go back, I think of that this week because when Bud, I read of his obituary, I felt badly. And the first thing I do when somebody like a I know dies, I wonder if I owe them amends, and I write about it, etc. But and I were clean. That was fine. But the line that got me is that he died in an assisted living place. I'm 75, he was 80, so. Whom the bells pull. Hello. Uh, I uh, come from a middle class Jewish family in New York Brooklyn, Bronx, Queens, Westchester County, Manhattan. Uh, I was born during the Depression, during the Great Depression, and uh, I don't remember ever 
having us being in tight times because of depression. I later asked my dad about it, and he said he worked for a company where every time they would cut his payback by 10%, they would give him overtime to make the difference because he was family. It wasn't family, but he was family. Business, so. uh, then, no sooner the depression, you know what ended the depression, don't you? World War II. And World War II, my brother went into service, was in the injury, in the infantry, was wounded in the war, etc. We got a telegram, all that dramatic stuff, etc. And it dawned on me fairly recently that I lived the first 15 years of my life in, in anxiety because of what was going on in the world. And a day didn't go by when my mother wouldn't say, think of the poor, starving, pick your planet, you know? <laughs> um, so eating was important, and I could please my mother by eating. I could please my mother by eating. And believe me, that was work. <laughs> Once I asked my brother, what, what was your biggest resentment toward mother? And he said that I didn't taste garlic till I was 25 years old. That was his <laughs> <laughs> um, I was okay. I was one of these kids. I wasn't a good ball player. I lived in fantasy. My mother kept telling me how wonderful and special I was. I was a better actor than anybody. I was smarter than anybody. I knew all the answers to the quiz programs, all of these things, and uh, which was wonderful, and I enjoyed it very much, except somehow it didn't work in life. I don't know. You know I, was still, I was still the right fielder, and the only reason I was the right fielder is we only had nine guys. You know what I mean? <laughs> anyway, I found my... Uh, my greatest joy, aside from eating, was in the radio. I would lock myself in my solution, you know, and, and listen to the radio. There wasn't television yet, which is why I had to do it this way. And, uh, and fantasize about my day will come. When they all find out how, how, how special I am, then my day will come. Uh, I was one of these kids who used to get called in from play so that we'd run and run and run and run and run. And I never had a weight problem. I was always on the husky side. I always had great shoulders. As a kid, I used to shop in the husky shop and things like that. It wasn't until uh, I came out of military service and, uh, during the Korean War in 1954, weighing a weight that I wish I weighed now. And my mother hustled me to the fat doctor, and he put me on amphetamine. And this was something that I would do for about 14 years. And I will tell you that between 1954, when I got out of military service, and 1976, when I found Overeaters Anonymous, I was on a diet, coming off a diet, binging, rewarding myself for being on a diet, or on speed. In the course of that, I had a couple of failed marriages. I worked in broadcasting. I worked overnight, late night, all kinds of hours, etc. Knew a lot of people. Knew a lot of people. The interesting thing about my family is that my older brother was the first boy born in my mother's family in 25 years. And until all the people of that generation died, my experience and my truth with people would come and say, Len, Hawaii has your brother. And my father was perfect, could do anything, and would do anything. Well, he, he taught my brother to do everything. They didn't have the patience for me. I was, I was the world's... Oldest late bloomer. I don't think I, I bloomed until I was 60, I think. I really, you know. Um, but anyway, so I was on amphetamines, but I got my throat in college, I got married, I got a job in radio, etc. Uh, life went on. I uh, worked crazy hours. The uh, 
marriage didn't work for a lot of reasons. We had a child. Uh, marriage broke up. Met another girl. Married her on the rebound. Had I had program in those days, maybe I would have taken a little time before I married this lady and found out what that was all about. And in 1972, uh, in a way, getting out of that marriage, I took a job in Los Angeles, because deep in my heart, I always wanted to be an actor, and I always wanted to be a star, and I always wanted to be uh, all of these things, and I knew if I came out here, this would happen, that I would get discovered. Even though Schwab, Schwab's was still open, yeah, Schwab's was still open. I was still discovering people in Schwab's. Um, what else? Uh, so I came out here, I was working at ABC, I worked at these jobs, etc., and... Um, uh, that day came along, oh, my old lady and I uh, parted our ways, my second wife and I parted our ways. My son was still back in New York, I was here, um, and uh, it was the weekend, Washington's birthday weekend of uh, 1976. I went to Las Vegas for the weekend with, a, with a, a lady, and it was a very, very self-destructive weekend, and I knew that when I came back I had to do something about my weight. I will tell you, by the way, that I have I have been to a couple of the commercial plans. I've been to the shot doctor in New York and in Los Angeles. And the only difference between the shot doctor in New York and the shot doctor in Los Angeles is in New York they have Broadway stars, pictures on the wall, and in California they have movie star pictures on the wall. Other than that, they're putting the same juice in the same place with the same result. On... February 23rd, 1976, I decided I would go back to Weight Watchers and do something about my weight. Um, I got a letter at work. It was from my brother, who had always been my higher power, and he said to me, you know, if you're ever going to get off your ass and do something about your life, and mind you, I'm 44 years old at the time, he said, you ought to try Overeaters Anonymous. It's supposed to be pretty good. Well, I made a call, and I found out at that particular time, and you can look it up if it's anywhere, in February of 1976, the World Service of Overeaters Anonymous was on Motor Avenue in Palms. I lived on Vinton Avenue, which was one block from Motor Avenue in Palms. You were looking at a man whose major resentment in life was that I had to carry lunch to school, and everybody else could go home for lunch. And here, this was a block away from my house. Unfortunately, they didn't have any meetings there. So I had to go to Beverly Hills High School newcomers meeting on a Monday night, February 23rd, to my first OA meeting. I walked in, did not know what it was going to be about. There were big people, there were little people, there were pretty people, there were ugly people, there were all kinds of people. And then they started and they said, I am a compulsive overeater. And I said, I was something. And then people got up to share. And they talked about my deepest, darkest secrets. Sneaking sliced American cheese in your underwear. <laughs> Going out to get six, getting 12, coming home with two. <laughs> eating in the bedroom, eating in the bathroom, eating it all fast so you didn't have to share with anyone. This was me. This was 44 and a half years of me doing things like this my whole life. And then they started to sneak in the clinker on me. 
I was so empty, I was so scared that I, I was so frightened that I, and the biggest light bulb you ever saw in your life went on over my head, and I will tell you, from that day to this, I have never felt alone again. Lonely? Yes. Alone? No. Because up to then, I thought I was the only one who would, you know, go to a motel room and eat the paper off the wall. That's, that's a figure of speech. I never did. <laughs> and then, the prettiest girls you ever saw in your life would come up with a piece of paper and say, here's my phone number, call me. <laughs> Could this be bad? <laughs> I bought the gray sheet, which was a food plan at that point, and I immediately started on this diet. I have to tell you that the woman who led the newcomers meeting, I went up to at the break, just in case you're curious, and forgive me for being in a Methodist organization here, I, Presbyterian, forgive me, Methodists are called a Presbyterian. Anyway, I walked up to her at the break and I said, what is this God shit? <laughs> and she said to me don't there's recovery here you'll find out for yourself there's strength here there's, there's a lot to offer here don't get turned off by it you'll find out so I went to a meeting the next night and I went to a meeting the next night and then I was working and then I ended up going to meetings the next couple of days and this woman I'd gone to Vegas with dumped me and I remember getting up at the Old Palms Park Wednesday meeting and sharing eight days in about how she dumped me at 10.30 and I managed to wait till 12 to get lunch and everybody cheered and applauded. <laughs> the secretary of the Beverly Hills Monday night meeting was a guy named Barry and uh, I figured the secretary was a very important guy, right? So I asked him to be my sponsor, and, and that was very much a God shot because uh, he was uh, a great help to me. And he listened, and I say to you guys who are new or don't have sponsors, who think you don't need sponsors, don't think you're worth sponsors, don't think a sponsor would want you or anything like this, get yourself a sponsor. Find somebody you can talk to. Find somebody you can talk to. Not somebody necessarily has what you want, but somebody you can talk to. My own sponsor of 15 years standing, I used to say to him, uh, how often do you feel like you want to kill your wife? And he'd say, not as often as I used to. <laughs> uh, thank God. Because he didn't say to me, sit down and you're in the night step and you got to write this and you got to write that. And that. He didn't say that. And today we have a, kind of have a rule that any time we want to complain about our spouses to each other, we have to say three nice things first, you know, etc. But anyway, uh, get yourself a sponsor. Well, this guy was my sponsor, and he would listen to my food and my troubles every day, every morning, 7.30 in the morning, and it was a wonderful experience. And I would talk, gee, I saw this woman at the thing. He said, stay away from her, she's true. say, gee, I saw this meeting at the, saw this, uh, Woman at the meeting would say, stay away from her, she's not for you. I said, why not? Because it's my girlfriend. <laughs> anyway, um, after a while he said, uh, I'd like to talk about your commitment to this prayer. I said, hey, I'm dropping weight like a fly. I'm down to a hundred and whatever it is. I don't know. And he says, no, they, this is a 12-step program. Uh, have you uh, bought the big book? And I started doing a lecture about discretionary income, and the big book was six and a half dollars, and 
as soon as I got the two and a half dollars, I would buy the big book, etc. And I went fishing that weekend. I got on a fishing boat and I got into a card game and I won six and a half dollars. <laughs> and I always considered that my first miracle. And I took that six and a half dollars and I bought a big book with that money. That's a second edition. We used it as a prop and one of the shows got thrown all over the place. It's pretty beat up, but I still got it. That one does not have acceptance at page four. Now 419 used to be 449. Uh, I wrote like crazy. My sponsor told me I'd get an A in life. Uh, I worked the steps, that's all. They also told me that I could do whatever I wanted to do as long as I was willing to pay the consequences. And as a result, I did some pretty stupid things. But I've since paid the consequences and made amends and learned a lot of things you don't do anymore. I have a friend sitting over here and uh, was talking about uh, grasping the concept of higher power. And I can tell you that 30 years ago, I was coming from a family which uh, went to a synagogue on the high holidays and uh, tried to sit as close as they could. Uh, Of course, we didn't have money like other people did. The best part of going to synagogue was the conversations coming home and the evaluations and descriptions and gossip of all the people that we had seen and who was sleeping with who and all that. And this is what I came to OA with, with the concept of God. And um, somebody said to me, used to be on Beverly Boulevard, the number 44 bus, I remember because he used to work on Beverly Boulevard, and I said, stand in front of the number 44 bus and get it, uh, you know, cans out and pull a Superman. See if you can uh, get it to stop. And I said, that's, that's, that's destructive. I could get myself killed that way. And they said, so that bus is a power greater than you. <laughs> yeah. Go over to Santa Monica Beach and tell the ocean and the waves to stop. I said, come on. Demosthenes tried that. Look what happened to him. And, and he said, so that's a power greater than you. I said, okay, there are powers greater than me. I accept that and I understand there are powers greater than me. How will they stop me from compulsively overeating? And they said, act as if. What does act as if mean? Take it till you make it, they say now and on, right? That means pretend that there's a God and the God is keeping you from compulsive overeating because it works with John. But don't make John your higher power. You notice how carefully the years we've known each other have tried not to make you my higher power. You know, done a very good job of it. You know, I'm very fortunate to have come into OA back in those days. And the reason I am fortunate to have come back away in those days, OA was relatively new. It was 18 years old, 16 years old, whatever. And we were crawling with AA speakers. It was not uncommon to go to the big speaker meetings and see circuit speakers from AA come and speak. And, you know, we had an argument about whether Clancy was better than ADC or so-and-so or the other guy, but the point was that we learned about the steps that you can overcome, that you can live, that you can uh, abstain 
through the steps. Getting rid of the anxiety. Recognizing the things you do. Stop doing those things. Cleaning up the garbage. Making amends. I was thinking coming over here, what am I going to talk about when it comes to amends? There were three people that I got to find. I don't got to find. Because there used to be four people. And one of those people walked into uh, Serenity Sunday about a month ago. And I was able to take her in a corner and say what I had to say for her and she forgave me. Um, so there are three people, I don't know if they're alive or dead, if they're in New York or Florida, wherever they are, but I, I need to find three people, uh, one to give money, one to apologize, two to apologize. But anyway, I've done this, and it's amazing how people after 30 years come into my life, and I'm able to recognize them, hug them, and ask for their forgiveness. A lot of people I can hug and recognize and say, hello, how are you? How are the kids? Or did you whatever, etc." But it was a fascinating time. It was a small town. I was talking to Lori earlier. Uh, once she got on the circuit, we were out talking in Riverside, San Bernardino, Oceanside. I had to go all over the place talking to people in OA. As a result, I know an awful lot of people in OA, and uh, I still see them, and it's very much my home and my family. Um, in uh, 1991, I had to start over. I took a new sponsor. We had a conversation about a lot of things, and I started over. That's why my date is 15 plus years. And we did things a little differently. My needs were different. I was uh, looking for a long-term relationship. Why am I talking about 91? I had a long-term relationship. Um, uh, I had a man with a long-term marriage. He had worked in the broadcasting industry. He was Jewish. He was a grandfather. Uh, I don't know, but a whole bunch of things. So whatever we had to talk about, he had experience in recovery, which I needed to hear. Uh, I did a lot of service in Hawaii. 1980, they wanted to do an event. I was on the board. I created the birthday party and was chairman of the first birthday party. And a lot of things we're doing, uh, they changed those reps. They don't know what they're doing. No. <laughs> it's grown and improved along the way. In 1983, I was chairman again, and uh, we didn't have a show. Richie had done three shows, and he said, enough, I don't want to do any more, and we needed a, a show, and uh, I remembered all those playwriting classes I had taken at NYU, and I sat down, and uh, I was actually visiting my parents in West Palm Beach, Florida, and uh, I wrote the show for the 1984 birthday party, and uh, I got a phone call from a woman who wanted to be on the committee. She's meeting us after for dinner. We've been going together 23. We're living together 23 years. So one of the rewards of the program. Service is something around. Anyway. Um, like I said, I've been around a long time. I've seen a lot of things. I've heard a lot of people. Um, the woman that I talked about in that opening anecdote, uh, who had lost 100 pounds in Hawaii. I later met when I got to Hawaii, and I, I was interested, and I went up to her, and uh, I said, uh, Hi, how are you? What are you doing lately? She says, uh, I was very unsuccessful in my attempt to kill myself. And I said, Oh, how are you? She said, Did you hear what I said? And I said to myself, This isn't Weight Watchers. You know. And she eventually was successful. The fellow Ira I mentioned, his wife, 
up the gas pipe as we used to say when, we were a kid, when I was a kid in New York. I've seen a lot of people die. I've seen a lot of people die in their 50s. I've seen people die. Some have taken their own lives. Some have just died because they, they died. I had a friend named John B., who I worked with over at KABC 100 years ago. And John and I were in OA together, and I'd say to John, I'd say, John, this bugs me how all these people are dying early. And he'd say, ah, it's the same thing as Kiwanis. Same exact statistics. People this, people that. He says, no, 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 not people dying at 46. People, 20-year-old girls taking every pill in the medicine chest and locking themselves in a bedroom. You know, not people standing outside a meeting in the valley and putting a gun to their head. You know, no, no, no. He says, no, no, it's the same statistics as Columbus. He died at 63. Anyway, uh, so I, I just started... I've always taken this seriously. The fact that uh, all these alcoholics used to talk when I was a kid, when I was a kid in OA, uh, led me to believe how serious a disease this can be. And I know how many bulimics didn't last long. It was tragic, beautiful, beautiful people. With the last show I did was about five years ago, and there was a, a sweet kid named Paula. She died at 36 from, uh, from her bulimia. And you know, we have choices. That's what they told me early on in this program, is that I have choices. I can choose to continue the way I live my life. And what are those three choices? Insanity, death, or recovery. Well, one out of three ain't bad. You know, what can I tell you? And I've always kept that in mind. And I've always been sensitive to people I've hurt. I... Uh, I found out very early on. I said to my sponsor, I'm going crazy. He said, what are you going crazy? The creditors are killing me. He'd say, you know, this isn't DA. Do you know how you can keep the creditors from calling you? I said, how? He says, pay your bills. <laughs> You're looking at a man who went back to work two years at 873 and his credit card free. I mean, that has nothing to do with OA. It's an outside department. <laughs> I don't do 40 minutes as well as I used to anymore. I, uh, if you ask me what is the biggest difference, I'm not the one who can answer that. My family can answer that. It's left to me. I don't say over my dead body as often as I used to. When I came in and the concept of powerlessness said that I didn't have to lose sleep over the presidency election. I didn't have to lose sleep over space research over recognition of red China or whatever the particular policy. That was great. It's not that I don't care. It's not that I don't read the paper. It's not that I don't listen to what's going on in the office and all that stuff. It's just I am aware of to what extent I can do anything about it. Uh, the woman I share life with wants to move. She wants to uh, uh, Moved to Oregon, she wants. Uh, it used to be North Carolina, North Kentucky. Now it's now she's talking Oregon, and she says to me, "In three years, I want to move. I want to move from Pikes. We live over around here, and it's too tight. It's too the apartment and all that. And I want to move." And she says, "I know. You want to move in three years. We don't have to discuss it yet." And that's true. When it gets to a year, then we can do some serious uh, talking. I had a son who lived in New York. I was estranged from his wife. We, I was divorced from his wife. I was 
able to get together with him again by the grace of this program, by the eighth and ninth step. He came out to L.A. to uh, go to school here. Ended up uh, going to... He was a political science major in college, and I knew as soon as the timing was right, I brought him out here and I took him to the OA conference, because that's his, his kind of stuff. You know, he's a political guy. And uh, since then, he's been chairman of the Metro New York Intergroup, chairman of the LA Intergroup, and is now vice chairman of the South Bay Intergroup. <laughs> but anyway, some of us are more political. But he, uh, he met a girl from Torrance in one of our shows, married her. They gave me a six-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter. She wasn't six-and-a-half when she was born. That's an interesting thing. Uh, in October, if I live, my granddaughter will celebrate her seventh birthday, and I will happily move mountains to be at that party. And from the day she's born, I've been to every one of her birthday parties, and I've yet to taste a piece of her birthday cake. You know, I'm not a hero. The people there at my birthday party. I didn't eat birthday. He ate my birthday. I don't know who ate But anyway, the point is, if I live to be 150 years old and never have another piece of cake in my life, I'm still ahead. You know, I've, I've still had more than my share because I've, 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 I mean, I have lived in my life. I used to. I always remember when I lived in, when I was working in ABC in New York. They had a bank of vending machines back there in the '60s that was state of the art. They were wonderful, and it was like being in Vegas. I never had any change in my pocket. I couldn't pass a vending machine without buying something. I can't eat like that today. I don't want to eat like that. I don't have to eat like that, and it just doesn't happen. Uh, it's fascinating because uh, I found out in the late 80s that I was diabetic and I'm, I'm impressed by the fact that I've been 18 years a diabetic and haven't lost any fingers, toes, or still got my eyesight. I'm getting uh, cataract coming up soon, but uh, haven't done that. But I had to make a decision when I had to eat on a diabetic food plan, did I want to have booze or bread? And I said, well, I'm not going to drink anymore. I, just like that. There are people I know that, you just said you're not going to drink anymore. No, I'm not going to drink anymore. I'm not an alcoholic. It wasn't that important. Give up bread, that's another story. <laughs> Whatever. I uh, call my sponsor every morning, 7.10 during the week, 8 o'clock on the weekends. I tell them what I'm going to eat. The other day, I didn't tell them I was going to have for dinner. Because we had dinner together. I said, I'll tell you when I get there. <laughs> Whatever. I read the meditation book. I wake up in the morning. I take the first three steps. I recite the third step prayer. I read for today. Don't ask me what I read today. But I, you know, sometimes 75-year-old memory, right? You know? I can remember what I had for lunch when I was nine years old, but I don't remember what I had for lunch. I do remember what I had for lunch. Um, if I have difficulty sleeping, how comes the pencil and paper? If there is something on my head, it's delivered the next morning. This is how I have to do it. I am arrogant. I still have a, a, a mouth. This guy named Don Torrance said the greatest thing I ever heard in the program. He said, your character defects don't go away so fast. And after, he said, I've been in the program 25 years, and I thought I was the one who was doing it wrong. You know, how can you, when you're living, when you're brought up in New York, there are certain things you need as survival techniques. One is to be fast. You've got to have the fast answer. You've got to have the bad mouth. 
chair. It doesn't go away as fast as I would like. Uh, in fact, I've shocked the hell out of people in program and say, that came out of your mouth? But uh, anyway, um, in uh, 1992, 93, my mother died. She was 92. I would not care for her last three years. They were not kind of gathering in Wisconsin at my brother's house and we were talking everybody commented on how unfulfilled she had been and what an angry woman she was you don't need to sit around and take your old mother's inventory but my mother had been a hell of an actress but she was born in 1900 to a Jewish family in New York and there weren't a lot of people in the 19 teens and the 20s who women who went on the stage and so she married, she had two kids, and when she auditioned for something, the guy would say, what do you need for? you got a husband and two kids. They'd all give it up for that. And I saw her work. I saw her work in church things and gossip things and all that. She was a very gifted actress. It wasn't that she was my mother. She did a good job. And anyway, when she died and they talked about how had the times been different and had she done that kind of work, what a wonderful thing it would have been. And I made a vow to myself. And I said, I am not going to go like she did. And I asked around to have pictures taken. And I went over to the Morgan Wixon audition for something, and it was up to the semifinals with this guy, and all of a sudden the phone rings. It's the other guy, he can't do it, and I got the part. And all of a sudden I'm on the stage for the first time in a lot of years. Other than the OA stage, I have to say that I did several OA plays perfected my craft there. I had pictures taken. I got in the union. I did extra work. As a got shot. First picture, I, you all remember, it was called Murder Live. It was a murder for, it was a, uh, a mystery for television on NBC. And here I am with a whole bunch of people who were all shuttled in 10 days over at the old Channel 11 down on whatever it is. And I'm looking at these piles of food. I am just looking at craft service and looking at these piles of food and I say, this could be a problem. <laughs> you want to know why I believe in God? Because Leslie Ackerman was on that ship. And I met Leslie when she was the secretary of the Tuesday night family Hills meeting. And for ten days we were there together and we were each other's strength. And that it's one of the many, many, many God shots I've received in my life. Uh, anyway, in the union, as soon as I got in the union, the work stopped. You notice all that work? I've done a couple of commercials. I've done things along the way. I'm not uh, doing as much as I used to because I, my type is uh, dying off, whatever it is. <laughs> anyway, uh, biggest difference about me of today and me of 30 years ago is I don't say over my dead body anymore. or rarely do. Members of my family can finish a conversation and finish a sentence without me interrupting. It doesn't work both ways, but I'm at least comfortable with it. Uh, I don't know what to tell you. I, I don't know if you got anything out of this. I have a wonderful life. I come back. My family is here. Uh, I have lifetime friends here. I have uh, perfected a lot of skills here. I wrote eight. My, my old lady and I wrote eight, eleven 
08 plays, screenplay, everybody in Los Angeles has a screenplay, right? Everybody here without a screenplay, please raise your hand. And uh, I don't know anything else. Uh, I come to a couple of meetings a week because uh, that's my, uh, that's what I do. That's, that's one of my hobbies. That and the Dodgers. Praying for the Dodgers. Uh, I had some real money issues. You want to work on money issues? Become meeting treasurer. Serenity Sunday. I'm holding more money every week, I think, than Harvard gets from its graduates. I can't believe I'm a clinical. But at least I know that I've got an honest, uh, an honest book and an honest camera. I'm running out of things to say. I love my life. It is pretty good. It's wearing down. Things hurt. i got to get this fixed. i got to get that. i got a cataract coming up. Uh, I work uh, with guys half my age. I don't know what the hell they're talking about. They don't know what I'm talking about. I say, so-and-so died. They say, who was that? I said, so-and-so's grandfather. Oh, okay. That and that, et cetera. But it goes on. My parents lived into their 90s. And I found from them that if you wanted to have friends, you had to make friends with younger people. Otherwise, there was nobody left, right? And in doing that, it kept them young and kept them modern. And I try to do the same thing. I don't know what point I started to believe in God, but I was reminded of it again this morning when I woke up, and I thanked Him for my life. And uh, thanked Him for light traffic going to the valley. Thanked Him for Beverly Glenn coming back from the valley, because I wouldn't go near the freeway on a Saturday afternoon. And uh, other than that, I'm delighted that I could be here and meet all of you, and I hope you had a good time. Thank you very much. We have a few minutes for questions. Yes, my dear. Hi, I'm Janice. Janice, how are you? I'm excellent, thank you. You mentioned that your son, that you didn't raise, is also an overeater? Yes. Okay. I wouldn't take her inventory, but I think his mother is too. Okay. Uh, I listen. 
That's the first thing. I listen. Then I probably say something very scintillating like, yeah, those things happen. Uh, I'm a great believer in gratitude lists, and I'm a great believer in balance sheets. In other words, you're meeting someone, you've got questions about someone, you want to know what you want to do with them in your life, what the next move to make, whatever the particular move may be be it in a relationship, be it a job, be it whatever, and you start writing all the pluses and all the minuses. My sponsor told me to put my gratitude list, everybody that I love and who I feel loves me, in my shirt drawer, because he says every week or so you get down to the list and you're reminded of it. So, you know, and I talk about it. I don't necessarily talk to my old lady about it, but I, you know, I will ask my sponsor, for example, what do you do when? I had an early sponsor who says the best way, quoted John Barrymore, who said the best way to fight a woman was with your hat, grab it, and run. Uh, anyway, I hope I answered your question, Murray. Yeah. Sir? Well, I'm a local reader. Hi, Dan. How do I get over it when I constantly have conflicts with my wife and my family <laughs> over food? Okay. My son and daughter-in-law are in program, and the one I share life with has been in program. So she's aware of my medical problems, and there are just things that are never in the house. A. I can't remember the last time somebody said, oh, have a piece, it's good for you. But I take care of myself and say, if I have another bite, I'll get sick, or I really can't do that. I mean, I just take care of myself. My son and daughter-in-law are very, very wonderful hosts. She's a good cook. She tries all kinds of things, etc. And I have limits, and I commit to what I am going to eat. But there is never any... Uh, if she brings something into the house... I'll bet you that she brings on leftovers because we're going out to dinner tonight. And they're her leftovers and not my leftovers. That's how I have to live my life. There has never... I almost got into a fist fight with my old girlfriend because I couldn't find four ounces of sliced turkey which had slid behind the crisper, I'll tell you. But anyway, that has had to come a long way. I no longer have any guilt about it, that I'm not going to eat no matter how you sweat and how if you're inviting me for dinner, uh, how you work hard to make this just for me. I hope I answered your question. I'm, where is that? What do you ask me answer? Anyway, I'm done. Thank you, Lord. God bless you.